This morning, we're going to continue our series on uh, women in the Bible. And when uh, Tom asked uh, for our help to, uh, to preach this series, I'm always a little bit leery. Uh, the, uh, the idea of a male pastor talking about uh, the sins of the women of the Bible. Uh, not exactly something I relished, but he gave me uh, this great opportunity to talk about two women that really I have been in love with since my freshman, uh, my, my sophomore year in college when I left, I, I, uh, I uh, led my first Bible study as a college leader, it was on the book of Ruth. And I got, I'm getting to preach on Naomi this morning and Ruth next week. And uh, Naomi, Naomi is me. Naomi is many of us. She's someone who's holding on to God and doing everything wrong. And in the midst of it, we find God faithful still. So you can turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, if you like, or we're gonna, we can follow on, in the, in the, on the screen here. Before I get into the scriptures, though, let me ask you this. We're going to talk about names this morning. How many of you have had nicknames? Have you all nicknames? Or just, if you feel... If you feel brave enough to share, what were some nicknames that you had? What were some of your nicknames? Come on. Itchy. What was that back there? Jin Jan. Yeah? Meathead. Okay, yeah, what was your nickname? Always hungry. Always hungry. Okay. My nickname... My nickname in college was Hood's Matey. Now, how did I get that name? You know, when the nicknames tend to mean something. So, always hungry meant he's always hungry. I'm, gonna, I'm assuming that itchy meant that this person scratched a lot. Hood's Matey. I wore hoods. Uh, I had this tendency to wear this denim jacket uh, that, that had uh, some sweatshirt material woven into it, and it would form a hood. But in, in, I went to school in Pennsylvania, and uh, the, the Pennsylvania winters were just, you know, a little too cold for that sometimes. So I wore this other sweatshirt, and I, I really wasn't a fashion-oriented kind of guy. <laughs> I just wanted something to keep me warm. And the sweatshirt I picked to sort of stuff inside of it that was with it all the time also had a hood. And my fraternity pledge brothers thought that was hysterical, so... They called me two hoods, which eventually got reduced to just hoods, matey. Nicknames, they mean something. Names, particularly in ancient Israel, they meant something. Um, maybe they were changed sometimes to reflect a new status. There was Abraham. Abraham, Avram, meant high father. His name was changed to Avraham, father of many. Uh, Jacob meant usurper. He wrestled with God, and his name was changed to Israel, one who strives with God. Naomi, what does it mean? It means pleasant. Naomi was thought of as a pleasant person. She had pleasant circumstances in her life, but things changed. Very hard things happened to her. Her status changed, and maybe she even thought that, she, that her person had changed and she wanted a change of name. And I want you, as we, li as we listen to this passage, listen for the names. For the names of people, for the names of places. And ask yourself, what do these names mean? 
And what might they be teaching us about these people and maybe even about ourselves? Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then skipping down to verse 19, you know, what we see is that Naomi wants to return home to Bethlehem. She hears the famine is over and despairing of her situation, she decides she needs to go back to relatives. Her daughter-in-law say they want to come with her, but she says, no, 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 stay home, marry men here. But Ruth insists. And so Naomi relents. And this is the story from verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, and the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to praise your name. And we do ask that your spirit would have been with us as we, have, as we did that. Be, would the spirit be with us now as we look at your word? Give us insight, understanding to this passage, this story, that we might be blessed by it, that we might be challenged, but ultimately that we might be called back to your grace and, and in so doing to a profound sense of, of rest and peace. Work in us this morning. Make us more like Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you know that I was in college ministry for many years. And on occasion, I would get together with other college uh, staff. And we would talk about the stories, the things that had happened that semester. And one year, I got together with one of my fellow campus ministers, He was working on the campus of East Stroudsburg University. Anybody know where that is? East Stroudsburg University. It's in Pennsylvania. We're talking, trading stories, and he was telling me about this young lady who was on his leadership team and had a very hard semester. One night she called him up in tears. Her boyfriend had just broken up with her. And this was a tragedy for her, and she began talking about uh, the circumstances and, and how it all went down. And, and then she began thinking about the implications. She was, she was thinking this was the person she was going to marry. What's, what's going what's gonna to happen? Is she going to be alone forever? And as she began recounting her story and talking about her fear, she got more and more and more upset. To finally, in the midst of it all, she said, how can God do it? God can't do this to me. To which... My friend 
who later went to be a military chaplain, which might tell you where I'm going with this, (laughs) said to her, not only can God do this to you, he has. A hard word. We're going to talk about Naomi this morning. Someone who got a hard word from God. She was stripped of her blessings. And and in the process, she became bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. I was in a pleasant state. Naomi. I I had a husband. I had sons. I was looking forward to grandchildren. I was looking forward to the hope of our family line continuing and taking on the inheritance in the promised land when, when someday, maybe when we go back. But now my state is very bitter. It's Mara. I have nothing. Or I should say she seemingly has nothing. And we might say this is a daughter of Israel. She's of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings. And she's already been displaced because of a famine. She's bereft of her husband. And now she's lost her sons. How can God do this to her? God shouldn't do this to her. But we're left with the hard reality that he has. Now, what are we to make of this? What are we to make of a God like this? Is this the way he treats his children? Is this really what he wants for Naomi, this kind of bitter existence? I'm going to tell you that there's more going on here than simply this tired old tale of a callous God treating his children poorly. God is at work for the good of his people. And at times, that providence, that working, it's what the Puritans would call a frowning providence. And there was bitterness with it. But he's working for good, and he will turn it sweet. So this question, this question is implicit for all of us as we read this story. And this morning, as we, as we think about this passage, what do you make of the bitter things in your life? And I know you all well enough in this past year, maybe not... Perfectly well, not everybody, but well enough to know there are better things in your lives. Are you willing to consider that God is doing something more? Now, to understand how God is turning this bitterness to something sweet in the life of Naomi, we've got to hear a hard word about Naomi. That she's double-minded. Did you miss it in the passage? Did you see it? Well, you might not have, but it's all over the first few verses, and we're going we're gonna to look together. We're going to do something maybe a little bit different. I'm going to ask for some interaction. We're going to do some Bible study together. Is that okay? It doesn't really matter if it's okay with you or not. We're going to do it anyway. <clears throat> Verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. <clears throat> what does that mean? The Judges is the book right before Ruth, and it ends with this verse. In those days, there was no in, the, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time of self-centeredness. It was a time of lawlessness. Even people just said, "Look, from my perspective, this is what I think is right, and I'm going to do that. I don't care what you say." That's the context in which Naomi is living. And in that context, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Okay, famine. 
It's a lack of food. Where, where was this famine? Okay, this is the interactive part. Where was, where was the famine? Say it, say it, say it louder. It's in Bethlehem. Where is Bethlehem? It's in Judah, but you, you guys are very biblically literate. I'm looking for Israel. Okay? It's in the land of Israel. It says the land, the land of Israel. And how does God describe Israel when he promises it to, uh, to Moses? What, what, is, what is his description? He calls it the land of milk and honey. It means abundance, sweetness. There's a famine in the land of abundance. Something is wrong. Beyond that, they're in the town of Bethlehem. Beth, Bet means house. Lechem means bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. It's a time of instability. It's a time of scarcity. So what does Naomi's family do? They're in the promised land. They receive the promises of God. There's some sort of famine. Something has gone wrong. So what's their instinct? What do they do? They run away. They run away. Specifically, they run to Moab. Now, maybe you don't know much about Moab, but Moab comes up in the book of Judges. So it's right around this time. Moab was a, was a country, a near country. Uh, the, uh, the Israelites had traveled through Moab when they were coming to the promised land. But, but more recently, Moab and their king, Eglon, had oppressed Israel. They had subjugated them. Um, and they had to be delivered from the oppressive hand of Moab. And they were delivered by by my favorite judge, if you know the book of Judges is about leaders called judges, and my favorite judge helped deliver them. His name was Ehud. Anybody know why he was my favorite judge? He was left-handed. They go and they find refuge in the arms of enemies. Maybe they weren't as bad as the Canaanites, but they certainly were not friends. Now imagine, imagine if you knew some folks, maybe, maybe even a, a relative, <clears throat> who during the financial crisis of 08, 09, and following, said, hey, I hear there's, there's, a, there's an oil boom in Venezuela. I'm going there. To heck with America. You know, how would we feel about that? You know, Hugo Chavez who was ruling down there at that time, wasn't the greatest friend of America. <clears throat> we might say, well, you got to do what you got to do, put food on the table. But some of us might feel, look, you know, Canada, okay, England, but Venezuela? You feel a little betrayed, maybe. All the more so when Naomi and Elimelech and their family go to Moab. Those who would oppose God's people to find comfort. You might say, well, what was she to do? She needed to do what was best for her family. And in her eyes, this was the right thing to do. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But there is a double-mindedness. We're looking to God, but also looking to our own wisdom. And we see it again when Naomi's Husband dies. In verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. Her son married Moabites. Now, I'm not here to, to talk about 
uh, race and ethnicity and prejudice and all that, but there were, there were guidelines for the Israelites in terms of who they could marry. They needed to marry people who shared their faith. These Moabites, they were non-Jews. They did not share their faith. Now, it wasn't strictly forbidden to marry a Moabite, if we can go into Deuteronomy uh, in a couple of places and talk, we could talk about the guidelines of who they could and could not marry. But at the very least, it was scandalous to marry a Moabite. And again, we might say, well, what does Naomi do? I mean, you know, she's, she's got to carry on the family line. They're in Moab. Her, her sons have got to have wives. So Moabite wives it is. Makes sense. Naomi is proving very pragmatic, but, but in her pragmatism, there's reason to believe that even she realizes she's skating the edges of, of her faithfulness, maybe even going over the edges of her faithfulness to God. Because when, when she is stripped of the men in her family, she thinks God is dealing with her harshly, but perhaps without, without, not without cause. She says, the Lord has testified against me. He's putting me on trial and he's Saying, look, you've, you've come up short. Naomi has been of two minds regarding her faith. He, she claims him, but she looks to take advantage of the opportunities around her. Some might say, look, she's just trying to be a faithful mother, doing her best in a tough situation. And I would say, indeed, we can and we should be compassionate towards Naomi. She is experiencing some of the most awful things someone can in life. But... We also have to be frank about her have-it-both-ways kind of faith. It's why she's in Moab in the first place. It's why she needs Moabite wives for sons. One, decision compound, one bad decision compounds another. Can you relate? Have you ever done that? Done something bad? You're like, uh, this wasn't good, but I can't turn back. I need to make up for it somehow. And you do something kind of iffy to make it all work, and it just makes it worse. We buy the house that's really beyond our means. Take out a huge mortgage and then we can't make ends meet. So what do we do? We take out the second mortgage so we can get the car, so that we can pay for the braces, so that we can have the landscaping we want. Don't hear me say if you have a second mortgage, you're in sin. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Instead of repenting of the first bad decision, we double down. Naomi doubles down. No wonder God struck the men in her life dead, right? No. No, that's not how God works. I don't know what God was working in the life of Elimelech or Malon and Kilian, but that's not the story God is telling here. God is telling the story of Ruth and Naomi in specific, and it's a story of his faithfulness despite Naomi's double-mindedness. Okay, so he's saying God's being faithful. Where do we see that? Where is God being faithful? Where is the evidence of that? Isn't she stripped of everything? Do you see it? What is it that God gives Naomi? Anybody? He gives her Ruth. He gives her Ruth. We, don't, we didn't read it earlier, but I'll read it for you now. When Naomi urged her, Ruth, to go back home, this is how Ruth replied. But Ruth said... Do not urge me to leave you at a return from following you for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. What a powerful statement of commitment. And Naomi doesn't see the value of it at all. God uses even our bad decisions for good. Again, Naomi's not seeing it. Naomi's used to seeing things from a worldly perspective. She's trusting in what the world thinks is a strong money, food stores, men. Of what help will a foreign widow be to me? She'll only be a weight around my neck. And here's the thing. Even when we're blind to the provision God gives, even when we don't appreciate it, God still gives it. And he's waiting for the right moment for it to come to full bloom. God hasn't given up on Naomi. God hasn't given up on you. Now, of course, when we have these moments of correction, they're painful. And at times we think that it's a sign that God hates us. And certainly, I would think Naomi is thinking this. She, she sought comfort among the rivals of God's people. So now, now she thinks she's being punished, robbed of her family, robbed of the hope of her family line continuing. God got her, right? God got her? No. No. She feels this way, which is why she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And in feeling that God hates her, she despairs. Dr. Victor uh, Frankel, a psychiatrist who suffered through the horrific concentration camps during the Holocaust, defined despair in this very simple but profound formula. D equals S minus M. Despair equals suffering minus meaning. Sometimes we feel that way. We don't understand what is going on in our lives. This, this doesn't have any purpose at all. We can relate. I'll tell you the story I was reminded of, really, um, the anniversary of this event that seemed devoid of meaning was this past Friday. On, on July 1st, 2007... 15-year-old boy named Austin was on a mission trip with youth in Mexico. His father was a chaperone on the trip. He was there with his family. It was a shared experience. It, it, it was, a, it was a, a, a trip with a cause. And the team had one afternoon free. So what they decided to do was to go in the Pacific Ocean for, for a swim. And they were, they were playing um, in the waves with friends. But the waves started to get rough, and they, start, they started knocking around, knocking around the boys pretty, pretty hard, and it knocked Austin to the ground, where his head found a rock. Unconscious, or maybe worse, he floated beyond the breaking waves, and the team strived to get to him, but they couldn't. And he was pulled out to sea. And after a day and a half of searching, of anxiously waiting, of praying, of pleading with the Lord, the harbor master called with the terrible news. He'd found and recovered Austin's body. What meaning was there in Austin's death? Why do we suffer these things? I've said that we... 
We're not, God isn't making us pay for our sins, but we keep asking ourselves that question over and over again. Are these tragedies payments for our disobedience? And I want to say again, no. No, they're not. The penalty for our sin actually is far greater than anything we could suffer in this life. But because, because God remains faithful and because he wants to give us hope, he took the penalty of our sin upon himself. He sent the person of Je- he sent Jesus Christ, God himself in flesh to take on that sin and divine wrath on the cross and the penalties are paid. And his resurrection holds the promise, promise that death is not the final word. Our loved ones have preceded us in this journey, but we will be reunited. So why this suffering? As a pastor speaking to people who who I know have suffered and ask these questions and ask why, I have to be honest with you, I don't know all the reasons. But I can tell you that God has his reasons and he's working something good. I love this little vignette of a story from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series, The Horse and His Boy. There is this tale, there's part of the tale where the main character, Kor, and his friend, Erebus, are being chased by lions on horses. And they're being driven someplace. And Erebus sort of falls behind. And as far as Kor knows, the lions get Erebus. And the lion almost gets Kor. And he's driven to a specific place. And when he arrives there, he has the opportunity to actually meet the lion that was chasing him, Aslan, who is the figure of Jesus. And there are these questions about what was going on that Aslan tells him that he was driving Kor to this particular place and that what happened needed to happen to get Kor to where he was. And so he asked the obvious question, so are you telling me that my friend Erebus suffered Maybe died. He doesn't know her fate at this point because of me. And this is how Aslan replies. Child, said the lion, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one has told any story but their own. I don't know the story, full story of, of Austin. But there was something being worked with his parents and with the people and the church that we were a part of. And there is something clear from Naomi's story that God is teaching her that there is no true comfort outside God's promises. We may seek it in the land of Moab or whatever our Moab is, but there is no true comfort outside God's promises and he's calling her back home. Naomi didn't have a clear vision of the promised savior of Jesus Christ. She knew salvation lie in Israel in the community of faith, and now the Lord is calling her back, literally driving her back to Israel, back to the only place, to the only faith, to the only God that can give true comfort. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian back from the path of sin. Naomi may despair, But the Lord is looking to restore her hope and to keep working with her. And the Lord is looking to restore your hope as well. He has not stopped working with you. There's something more we need to point out about Naomi. Naomi is double-minded. So are we. 
She's despairing at times, so are we. And she proves herself also to be manipulative. There was a custom in the ancient world. When, uh, when a male heir died, a near relative could marry his widow and have children in his name and carry on the family line and make sure the inheritance was secure. Uh, they, in that sense, they redeemed the family. It was called the kinsman redeemer. Naomi, stripped of an heir, the family line ends with her, so she thinks. She's without hope, but when she returns home, she discovers there is a near relative, a, na- a man named Boaz, who takes interest in Ruth. And we're going to talk about that next week a little bit more. But he's a kinsman redeemer. And Naomi goes, aha, here's my salvation. We got to make sure we take advantage of this. Chapter 3, verse 1, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight, the processing the harvest, at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Get yourself looking good. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet. Make sure he gets a little cold so he wakes up. And lie down and he will tell you what to do. So what is happening here? Um, The harvest is being taken in. They're processing the grain. But there's also this celebration. So they're they're feasting. They're eating and they're drinking. They're having a, a good time. So Naomi tells Ruth, look your finest, get dressed up, get anointed. Anointed means that, you know, when you get anointed with oil, it means your skin is kind of glistening, you know. Visit Boaz after he's had his fill and is sleeping and then wake him up. And then whatever happens, happens. Now, some commentators, not all, some commentators will disagree with the interpretation I'm about to give you here. But as someone who has worked in campus ministry for many, many years, when you put a young woman together with a man who is impaired with drink, good things don't usually happen. (laughs) Naomi is using the situation to get Boaz, an honorable man, to commit himself to Ruth in a moment of weakness. She's manipulating the situation. Now, Boaz proves stronger than anticipated, the manip- and the manipulation was unnecessary. But we might think, oh, can we really blame Naomi? This was her chance. This was her chance to redeem all that suffering and turn it into something good, to make the suffering make sense. And I can relate. I want the world to make sense, even if I have to force it to. But what she fails to understand is that She doesn't need to force God's hand. She doesn't need to force God to make good in his promises. God is already on her side. She doesn't need to make things happen. What she should do is seek to be faithful and trust God. But that's really been the problem all along, hasn't it? That's our problem too. We keep thinking the Lord's going to let us down. And so we despair or we manipulate 
And in the process, we could destroy the people around us as Naomi almost destroyed the reputation of Boaz and Ruth. Later, Boaz says, hey, uh, they have this good conversation, but he says, you need to leave here before sun comes up, before anybody sees you here, because this doesn't look good. We keep looking to find a better way to get more out of life, to skate the edges of faithfulness, sometimes skate beyond the edges of faithfulness because we think God is denying us a full life when what he's doing is calling us back to the only relationship that can really give life. So how does God respond to Naomi's manipulation? Well, he thwarts her method, but he gives her what she wants, redemption. He gives it anyway. Boaz marries Ruth. They have a son named Obed. And this is how it's described in chapter four. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What a story. What a savior. What a God we have. He uses the weak things to shame the wise. He remains faithful when we're faithless. He uses our folly to bring about our own salvation. Obed is the grandfather of the greatest king Israel ever knew. And more than that, he's the ancestor of Jesus Christ, the savior of not just Naomi or Bethlehem or Israel, but the whole world. And if you're, a, if you're a believer in Christ, this is the God who has sworn to walk with you. So rest, rest in his power and his devotion to you. Now, to be frank, what has happened to Naomi is tragic. And she's let the tragedy turn her into something unpleasant, something ugly. And we need to be frank. Sometimes we've let the circumstances in our lives turn us into something ugly. We need to confess our own double-mindedness. We need to confess our despair. We need to confess that we tend to manipulate, that we've gotten bitter about things. And then we, net, we, we need to let grace change us, create a new status, a new reality. God is working something good. It's captured really well by a U2 song called Grace. Let me read some of the words to you. Grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. It could be her name. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. God is up to something so much more than Naomi could even guess. And in the process, God's going to turn her bitterness sweet. And as we read this story, the question for us is, are we willing to consider the possibility that God is using the bitterness in our lives to do something, to turn it sweet?
Let's pray for the wisdom to do just that. Father, thank you for the opportunity you've had to look at your word this morning. We do pray that by your spirit, you would open us up to where we've been hard-hearted and bitter and closed off to your working and thinking that you're vengeful and spiteful. Lord, open us up to see you're none of those things. But you are calling us at times in very hard ways, calling us back to the only place we can find life in your arms. This week, Father, show us your love and mercy and turn our bitterness into something beautiful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in praise of this great God by singing Amazing Grace.